The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to finish Revelation chapter 1 today, going through. So let's go ahead and look there. Uh, I want to cover verses 9 through 20 in the book of Revelation. Uh, I was in, I've been encouraging our saints the last two or three weeks to, if they're not reading something else in their scripture, that... The book of Revelation sure is an exciting book to be reading during your uh, devotions or on your own as we're going through this throughout the week. Um, So I would encourage you to do that if you have opportunity. And we noted that Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, God gives a promise that he will bless you if you do read the book of Revelation. You will be blessed as you take in the word of God from this great book, this great prophecy. So we covered the first eight verses. That was really the prologue or the introduction to this book. And in verse 1, this book opens up with these amazing words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis. That Greek word we talked about was, it means an unveiling, pulling back the curtain so you can see that which is hidden behind it. And that's what revelation is all about. It is the revelation or the unveiling or the majesty of Jesus Christ put on display. That's what this book is is all about. It is all about Jesus Christ. That's why I am befuddled when Christians tell me, well, why should we study Revelation? Or, oh, I really haven't. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Isn't He your Savior? So what an incentive, what a motive to read, to know, to know it thoroughly. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ of the way He is right now, what He actually looks like. We're going to see that in this vision in chapter 1. So it's about Jesus Christ, what He looks like actually right now. Quite different than the humble suffering servant of the Gospels and when He was alive 2,000 years ago from 30 to 33 A.D. So it's the Jesus of what He looks like now in glory. This book is also about Jesus Christ and how He relates to His church. That's the whole point of Revelations chapter 2 and 3. The unveiling of Jesus Christ and what He thinks about His church. And we're going to see that in detail, chapters 2 and 3. And then also, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ and His dealings with the world in the future. What does Jesus think of the future? What does Jesus have planned for the future? How is He actually going to carry out the future as the judge, really, upon this world. That's what Revelation chapters 4 through 18 is all about. This book is about Jesus Christ, the revelation and the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Also at His second coming, the second coming which is in the future, which is a historical fact, it's going to happen. That's Revelation 19 given in detail, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. So it's about Jesus Christ also at His return at the end of the age. It's also about Jesus Christ in His glory as He reigns for 1,000 years on this earth. That's what Revelation 20 is about, Revelation 5.10 and several references in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and even we're going to see in chapter 1. It's about Him being King on His kingdom on earth. Amazing, glorious, fulfilling all kinds of Old Testament prophecies. It's about Jesus Christ as well, beyond the millennium in eternity future, where He reigns supreme over the entire universe on behalf of His Father and in perfect communion with God the Father. That's chapters 21 and 22. So that, in a nutshell, is the book of Revelation. It is all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The apocalypsis, the unveiling, the manifestation of Jesus Christ in all His glory. So let's go ahead and look at the rest of chapter 1. 
And I divided this up into three main points that I want to make. And the first point, and I, I, by the way, the, the theme throughout verses uh, 9 through 20 in chapter 1, I call it John's heavenly commission. John's heavenly commission. Three main points I want to highlight here, and they all just flow right out of the Scripture. And the first point is in verses 9 through 12. So why don't you follow along as I read the first point there. And it's about the prophet. And the main point is it's the prophet John in exile. Verses 9 through 12. John the Apostle said in verse 9, I, John, three times he refers to himself in this book. This book is not an anonymous book. Some books are. Biblical prophetic books are never anonymous, by the way. Biblical prophetic books are never anonymous. This one included. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Verse 14, we'll just go through. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades." Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the seven and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Point number one, verses 9 through 12, we're going to look at the prophet, and that is John in exile. In exile, he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner in his crime because he's being treated as a criminal by the Roman government under the evil, wicked Domitian, whose reign was in the 80s to 96 A.D. His crime, well, John was a pastor in the area of Asia Minor where this takes place for probably 30 plus years left Jerusalem the time that Peter and Paul probably got killed in the 60s and ministered in the area of Asia Minor, probably a pastor there, knew all these churches. One of the last apostles, actually he's the only living apostle at this time when he wrote because all 11 other colleagues of his have been murdered, killed because they were Christians. So what's John's crime? He's a Christian. That's his crime. It's against the law. It was not a legitimate religion under the Roman Empire. 
And he preached about Jesus. He preached the Gospel. He preached soul loyalty to one God, the triune God of the universe, and not to the Roman Caesar. That was a crime. That's why one of the reasons why he finds himself in jail or really confined to this island. Like I said, it's kind of like Alcatraz, but much bigger. The island of Patmos out in the Aegean Sea, close to Asia Minor, probably 40 miles off of the coast, 70 miles away from a key city, uh, Ephesus, and this rock. It was a volcanic, barren rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea, 10 miles long, 5 miles wide. And it became a colony for criminals. And John was confined there under hard labor because of his crime, telling people about Jesus. That still happens today. Persecution to that degree for believing in Jesus Christ. We know that it happens in countries all over the world, communistic countries, Islamic countries. Christianity is against the law in Saudi Arabia right now, among other countries. You could be put in prison. You could be executed. It's happening right now. So it's very pertinent for the church around the world. So here's John in exile. And he's, he's writing to these seven churches because that's who Jesus told him to write to. These seven churches in Asia Minor, they were familiar with him. They knew him. He chose seven of these churches. He's probably been to every one of these churches. He may have been the pastor at one of them, particularly the church at Ephesus. And so for some, he is allowed the freedom apparently to write while he's over there uh, as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Somebody's going to take this letter to those seven churches. And he's writing what... Jesus tells him to write, and as he addresses his audience, the Christians in those seven churches, he's also addressing all believers throughout all the ages, throughout the 2,000-year church age. So literally, these, uh, this information is also addressed to us, but first, historically, initially, to the saints that are in Asia Minor. Many of these churches are undergoing persecution from Rome. One church in particular in uh, Ephesians, or, uh, Revelation 2.13, their pastor was murdered for being a Christian. Antipas. John was aware of that. The church at Smyrna was being persecuted physically by those around them, by Jews that hated them and by the Roman government. So they are under duress. The church in Asia Minor is being persecuted. So John relates to them, and that's why verse 9 says, I, John, your fellow, your brother. He didn't say, John the Apostle, the one who walked with Jesus. He didn't do that. He's a humble man, and he wants to relate to his people. At the same level there, and he does, as they, because their status was one before God. Every Christian. Our status is the same. We are needy sinners saved by grace. There's no hierarchy of greatness before God when you're a sinner and a human, and John knows that. In terms of his function, yes, he was an apostle. In terms of his status before God, he was a sinner in need of grace, saved by Jesus Christ, and a brother with every other believer. He understands that I, John, your brother, brother in the Lord, and your fellow partaker in the tribulation, in sufferings, literally. Tribulation is the word. Because John was in prison. John has suffered. He's seen his friends, the apostles, suffered. All 11 of them killed. He saw his best friend get executed or heard about it. Peter, probably crucified. One of his other closest friends, one of the apostles, his brother James was murdered. The first apostle to be murdered. John knows what it's like to suffer for Christ, to suffer as a Christian. And so he can sympathize with these seven churches. And that's what he says. I am a fellow partaker in tribulation. You know what? Suffering is the calling of a Christian. That scares some people. 
I've shared the gospel with people and they knew everything I was saying was true. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Are you a sinner? Yes. Is the only way to get to heaven through Jesus? Yes. If you die without Christ, are you going to hell? Yes. Do you want to believe in Jesus right now? No. Why not? I remember explicitly asking somebody this, trying to walk them through the gospel. Because I don't want to suffer in this life. They knew they were going to have to suffer to some degree. Whether it's just rejection, humiliation, ostracized in society, or it could be physical suffering, persecution. That's what was going on with John here. But that is the calling of a Christian. Suffering at some degree. That's Philippians 1.29. We have been called not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering for Christ. Suffering for truth and holiness. You know what? I believe that the Christians in the church is going to suffer more and more where we're at in this world right now and even in this country and in the state in which we live. If your eyes are closed and your head's in the sand and you don't see it, it's, it's a coming. The smothering persecution and hatred of God is going to come down like a cloud on the church. But we can be encouraged because there's another fellow sufferer. That's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We don't suffer in vain. So John, relating to these fellow Christians, I'm your brother, we're one in the Lord, I'm also suffering tribulation just like you are. That's the bad news, also the good news, I'm also one with you in the kingdom. The kingdom of God. How do you get into the kingdom of God? By, by knowing the king personally. That's how you get into the kingdom of God. Who's, who's the king of the kingdom? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you get in the kingdom. And there's only one way. And it's, it starts through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it starts in this life. And once you become a Christian and you are born again and you know Jesus Christ personally, He lets you into His kingdom. And it is a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual reality. It's real. But the outward physical manifestations haven't happened yet. This is no kingdom of God on earth right now. That is a prayer of Jesus that will be fulfilled in the future. The kingdom of God is coming literally to earth. That is the good news. It's going to come to earth just as Jesus prayed. But it's not happening right now on the earth. It's happening in the realm of the Spirit. And if you know Jesus Christ this morning, you are in the kingdom because you know the King. And you are one of His. And no one can snatch you out of His hand. So this is great news. And they need encouragement. They need good news. They need to be reminded, man, you're in the kingdom. You're suffering right now on earth. It's not going to last forever. So he's trying to give them a future perspective to endure persecution and to persevere, which is his next point. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in this tribulation that's going on. I know your pastor was murdered in one of the churches. But you're in the kingdom. You know Jesus, the King. He wins in the end. And as Christians, we are called to perseverance. Hupomone, to endure under. To endure hardship when you're under a heavy weight that's weighing you down. That's also the calling in the life of a Christian. A Christian is one who perseveres in life. You go on and on and on. You don't give up in Christ. You persevere. And the reason you persevere is because God is the one who has you in His hand. He's got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He is the one who causes you to persevere, Christian. That's the good news. You will not fall away if you truly know Jesus Christ. That is a common mark of a Christian. A Christian is one who perseveres. And you probably have things in your life right now that you need to persevere. Little trials, big trials, personal trials, emotional trials, financial trials. Perseverance as a Christian. It's key. And you can do it if you're a true believer because God will sustain you. It's, not, it's hard. So John goes on. 
I'm just like you, people. Just like you, beloved. Just like you, saints. And all of us, we are one in Jesus. He says in the middle of verse 9. I was on the island called Patmos in prison. Why? Because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was a follower of Jesus. I preached the Word of God. I taught the Word of God. They didn't like it, so they threw me in the shackles. And here I am confined in prison. He gives us more details, John does, about this incident when he wrote this book. Verse 10 says, He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is simply a reference to Sunday. The early church took on that phraseology, the Lord's Day was Sunday because the Lord's Day was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And in the Old Testament, prior to Jesus rising from the dead, God's people met and celebrated on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And then Jesus rose from the dead, began the church, created that entity and institution, His bride. And from that day forth, the church has always celebrated corporately, formally, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And we call Sunday the Lord's Day because this is where it comes from, Revelation chapter 1. And so it was a Sunday. And John is saying, boy, isn't that appropriate? When I got this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I saw a vision of the risen Jesus Christ in my cell here in prison on the Lord's Day on Sunday, when that's the very day He rose from the dead. So that's what happened. It happened on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, and He was in the Spirit. Meaning he was in the realm of the Holy Spirit. This is a prophetic phrase. This is referring to the realm of prophecy. This is where uh, God communicated direct information to prophets selectively, spontaneously throughout history. This is a technical prophetic phrase. It's right out of the book of Ezekiel, among other places. Ezekiel chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel, 600 years before Christ, was a prophet of God. He's got a long old book. And a repeated phrase that goes all throughout the book. And he's got some crazy visions. Some of which defy interpretation. And a repeated phrase all throughout that book is as he was getting these visions is this in Ezekiel chapter 2. Uh, then God, the Lord, said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet. He's talking to the prophet. And then Ezekiel, because he kept falling over because he kept seeing these amazing visions and he was getting scared and he was on. He'd fall on his face and then God kept having to stand him up. And so that's why Ezekiel 2, verse 2 says, And God spoke to me, oh, and, and as He spoke to me, the Spirit entered me. The Spirit of God entered Ezekiel, raised him up, and was about to give him a prophecy. And then in the next chapter, it says, The Spirit of God lifted me up, and behold, I saw visions of God. And this could be repeated. This happened to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where he's talking about himself and the opportunity where he was, man, I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body or how it happened, but it was in the spiritual realm and I was caught up into third heaven and I saw things about paradise and heaven and things inexpressible and things that humans aren't allowed to see. He was in a prophetic state of mind and reality where God communicated direct revelation. That is exactly what happened to John the Apostle. That is how he received the book of Revelation. It was in the realm of the Spirit as a prophet of God. And that's why he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And so he's in this prophetic realm. And probably John would say the same thing. Man, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. It was, I was hearing things and seeing things and feeling things and touching things. It seemed real and physical. But at the same time, he's given great privilege that other people cannot see and hear. Because he's a prophet. So he's in the Spirit. And he says, and I heard behind me. That's what's cool about the book of Revelation. It, you, you need to use all five of your senses when you read and study Revelation. It was communicated in signs and visions. So as you're reading it, you're trying to figure this all out. And wow, this is amazing. How picturesque is this? And then 
He heard, I heard, I heard. So it goes on and on. And so what did he hear? He said, uh, it was on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice, a very loud voice. How How loud was it, John? Well, he says it was like the sound of a trumpet. That comes right out of the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 19, when God was speaking to Moses and his people, there was thundering, there was lightning, the mountains were quaking, and there was a sound out of heaven like the sound of a trumpet. In other words, it was loud. Why did he choose a trumpet? Well, because there's only one, no, I was going to say there's one volume to trumpet, but there's actually two. There's loud and louder. Because you can play a violin softly, quietly, gently. You can play the piano even very softly. Even a drum you can play very soft. A trumpet? No, you can't do that. You cannot play a trumpet quietly. It is loud. You've got to blow. You've got to blare. And so Exodus 19 says the same thing. God spoke from heaven and it was loud. It was piercing. The voice of God. As a matter of fact, if you trace this word uh, loud, Revelation 1.10, I heard behind me, I turned around in this loud, blaring voice. Twelve times in the book of Revelation, it says there was somebody talking loud. And it's always from heaven. It's either an angel of God, Jesus, or God Himself shouting down from heaven, and they are loud. And some people say, McManus, you're too loud when you preach you hurt my ears. Man, I'm just imitating the book of Revelation. It's a loud book. Start at chapter verse 5 and go all the way through and trace it. Loud, loud, loud. This is God. This is heaven. So apparently we're going to be prepared with ears that can handle heaven. So this loud voice. What is this loud, authoritative, glaring voice? Verse 11, it says, uh, So he turns around as he heard this voice. And the voice said, Write in a book what you see. Actually, the word loud occurs 19 times in Revelation. In verse 11, the word write, the command to write. Jesus telling John to write it down. That occurs 12 times in Revelation. Scriptures are inspired by God as Christ commanded His apostles to write the Word of God down. It's not a human book. Jesus told John to write this down. That's how we know it is true. And this voice said, write in a book what you see, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Verse 12, and John says he turned to see the voice. Who was saying this? And he's turning to the voice that was speaking with him with thunder. And having turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. So the first thing he sees is these seven golden, glistening, beautiful lampstands, these portable oil lampstands that would have been familiar to John from the Old Testament, from the temple. That's the first thing he sees. So anyway, that is the prophet John exiles. It prepares the stage for us. And so what does he see? He turns around. So let's go to the point number two. And that is, number two is the priest. The priest. Jesus in glory. And when I say priest, I mean high priest. Ultimate priest. Final priest. Jesus in glory. He's the great and one and only high priest. That's verses 13 through 16. So John turns around. He sees these seven golden lampstands. Whatever that is. And in the middle of the lampstands, or one translation says, in the midst of the lampstands, So they could have been maybe in a circle and there's somebody standing in the middle of the lampstands. That is significant. The proximity of whoever's standing there, that is significant. He is in the midst. He is among them. He's in their presence. He rules over them. Whoever this is. Whatever the lampstands are. In the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That phrase is out of the Old Testament. That phrase is out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. 
where Daniel had a vision 550 years before Christ. Same thing. He was in the Spirit. God showed him the end of the age, of the Messiah coming in glory. And when he had one of his visions, he was looking at the throne room of God in heaven and it says, next to God the Father who was the Ancient of Days, there was also one like a Son of Man coming in His glory. That's Jesus Christ. From Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the Son of Man, the coming Messiah, the glorious One, the representative of the Father to culminate all of world history. Did you know that in the four Gospels, Jesus' favorite title for Himself was the Son of Man? That's what He called Himself. So it's a very specific phrase. It comes right out of the Old Testament. By the way, just in Revelation chapter 1, there are about 20 to 30 direct allusions that come right out of the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament, you're missing it all. Because chapter 1 is just drenched. The whole book of Revelation is seeping with Old Testament truth. Dripping. Because Revelation is the fulfillment of everything. Four, over 400 references in Revelation. Go back to the Old Testament. 400 references from the Old Testament. Here's one that is explicit. I turned around and I saw one like the Son of Man. So what does John see? What is he privileged to see? There is he's confined to this prison on this old volcanic rock at Patmos. He turns around and he sees the seven lampstands and he sees Jesus Christ in glory standing there in the midst of the lampstand right in front of him. This is not symbolic. This actually happened. Jesus was there. So he goes on to describe Jesus Christ. Turns around and sees Him as the Son of Man. I said earlier that verse 1 says this book of Revelation is all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And chapter 1 of Revelation emphatically highlights that or reiterates that because there are 27 direct descriptions of Jesus in Revelation alone. Revelation chapter 1. 20 specific descriptive attributes that characterize Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. That, that would make for a fantastic Bible study. Write down all 27 phrases that depict, describe who Jesus is and what He is like. Because they are all technical. Almost every single one of them comes out of the Old Testament. Speaking of God, Deity, the King of Kings, the Messiah. That's who Jesus is. And this description of Him is no exception. There's about ten descriptions of Jesus that come out of the Old Testament. To describe Him, this One, this Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He's the coming One. That's the first description. What else? He's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. What does that mean? That's not just uh, an incidental comment that he made. Oh, by the way, he's wearing some sheet. No. The word is very specific for robe. It's used in the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament of this word for robe is used seven times. Six times in the Old Testament, the word for robe refers to the priest. In Exodus and Leviticus, Leviticus 16, of the priest of Israel wore, by God's requirement, they had dress codes. And a priest had to wear a specific kind of robe. It was a robe of dignity. It was a robe of, of authority. But it was also the robe of a priest. And that's what Jesus is here. He's portrayed as a priest. It even goes on and gives more detail about His priestly nature. Jesus is many things. And one thing is, is He's a priest. And it goes on. Not only did He have the priestly robe, it says that He was girded across His chest or His breast with a golden girdle. That comes right out of the Old Testament, Exodus and Leviticus as well. That the high priest that served on behalf of God to His people had a dress code, had to wear a specific kind of robe, and was girded across His chest with a girdle designated by God. This is Jesus Christ in His glory as high priest. 
And earlier, Paul Beckman picked a chapter out of Hebrews, which is excellent because the, the whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus as the high priest of the church. What is a priest? A priest goes to a holy God on behalf of sinful people as their mediator, as their advocate. And we need that. Because if we go before a holy God without the proper mediator, God says, no man can see me and live too holy. But Jesus, the great high priest, because of his work and because of who he is, he is the eternal one. He is the great high priest. Died on the cross, absorbed God the Father's wrath, rose again from the dead in victory, ascended on high and blazed a trail to heaven for all saints ever since Jesus Christ, directly into the immediate presence of God the Father, so that anybody who is a Christian and knows Jesus Christ can pray directly to the God and Creator of the universe. Unbelievable. Great privilege. Thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and the one and only high priest, by the way, the eternal high priest who will never die. goes on to describe more about Jesus as high priest standing among these seven golden lampstands, whatever those are. Uh, Verse 14, uh, John describes his head. The head of Jesus and his hair were white like wool. That phrase comes right out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. That's a description of God on his throne. And it calls him the ancient of days. And the emphasis there is that he's an eternal being. That's what it's saying about Jesus. He's not just a man. He is the eternal one. He never had a beginning. He was never created. He has always existed. With the Spirit. With the Father. And these attributes taken out of Daniel 7, 9, reserved for God the Father, are now placed on Jesus. Same attributes. How can the Bible do that? How can the Bible describe Jesus Christ with the same attributes that God the Father does? Because God the Father and God Jesus are one. One God, three different persons, but Jesus possesses the same attributes as the Father and as the Spirit. And that's what's going on here. Not only is God the Father the Ancient of Days who's been around for all eternity, so is Jesus the High Priest. And the second part of verse 14, what else about Jesus is He's looking at Him. He's going to go from head to toe. Starts at the head. His hair was white like wool, like snow. Pure, also sinless. Perfect. His eyes were like a flame of fire. These are descriptions taken out of Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Prophetic descriptions of deity, authority, God, eternality. But the idea that Jesus has eyes that are like burning fire is that He sees everything. He can can burn right through your heart. He knows it all. He knows our minds. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows what we do and... Dark corners, He knows it all. He is omniscient. He knows everything. That's what it means. And it's also an aspect of judgment. Jesus has come before John to execute judgment and chastening. It's part of His job in the book of Revelation. Revelation is a loud book. Revelation is also a book of judgment. We're going to see that. It's instigated by Jesus the judge. His piercing eyes. He knows everything. He can't hide anything from Jesus Our great high priest says, Hebrews chapter 4, it goes on, he goes to the head, and then he goes to the eyes, and he goes down to the feet, verse 15, and Jesus' feet were like burnished bronze, hot, burning metal, molten metal. And the imagery there is clear. You touch it, you burn, don't you? It has been purified. And he's got these hot, burning, molten feet, and he's standing among these seven golden lampstands, whatever those are. So that's his feet. Authority. He walks with authority. He walks with purity. He walks with judgment. He walks amidst these things. 
with great power. And this burning molten metal was like it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And then it talks about his voice. It's already been described as a trumpet. It's loud. It speaks of his authority, his commanding, binding authority. Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. That's a good motto. You should write that in my Bible. But anyway, so here's Jesus speaking with great commanding authority. Not as only as his voice like a trumpet, it says that uh, he describes it another way. His voice was like the sound of many waters. That comes right out of Ezekiel 2 again. When God's speaking of heaven in Ezekiel chapter 3. This powerful, binding, intimidating, frightening, fearful voice of a holy God. That's Jesus talking. He is not a wimp. Jesus is not a wimp. I don't care what Ted Turner said. Because he said that. He doesn't know Jesus. Verse 16. What else about Jesus? And Jesus' right hand. Right hand speaks of authority. Speaks of power. The right hand of God. The all-authoritative one. Not only is Jesus omniscient and knows everything. He is omnipotent. He has all power. And He shares that power jointly with God the Father. And in His right hand, Jesus is holding something. He's holding seven stars. They belong to Him. He's clenching them. He rules over them, whatever these seven stars are. Not only that, again, it speaks of His voice and the power of His Word because out of Jesus' mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword. What do you do with a sharp, two-edged sword? You go to war with it. You kill people with it. You slaughter people with it. You use it. You wield it. But that's not the only thing you do with it. A sharp, two-edged sword is very specific. It's got two edges. You can do two different things with it. It produces two different results. The Word of God coming out of Jesus' authoritative mouth as the omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe and high priest has the all-powerful binding words that can do one of two things. They can bless people. They can damn people. The truth of Jesus. That's the point. His Word is authoritative. And He had His Word inscripturated and written down for us. The words in Scripture are just as powerful as the words that came out of Jesus' mouth that day with John. Scripture inspired binding by God. It's the very Word of Jesus Himself, like a sharp two-edged sword. It cuts through. You know, the truth cuts through, doesn't it? It cuts through the phoniness, the superficiality. It cuts through the lies. It cuts to the chase. It exposes. It forces the issue. That's what truth does. Truth divides. That's what it's supposed to do. It's animated. It is active. produces results. It never comes back void. That's what God said. You can never... Straddle the fence when you're talking about truth, particularly about Jesus. You won't stay there long. That's what Jesus' Word does. Verse 16 continues, uh, His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Just utter, utter brilliance and glory. The Lord Jesus Christ. Fantastic. You know, the great promise for the Christian is, uh, we don't know what God's like right now, but the promise in First John says that someday we will know what God is like and what Jesus looks like in all of His glory and God the Father because uh, we shall be with Him and we will be like Him. So we're going to know. We're going to know exactly what God is like because we're going to be with Him and be like Him someday. We are also going to be shining like the sun in its strength as the lights of the world. It's a promise of Scripture. So just as glorious as Jesus is, if you're a Christian someday, you're going to be just as glorious. Awesome. Great truth. So that is the priest, Jesus in His glory. Well, let's go on to see what these lampstands were, whatever those were, and those seven stars that were undefined that many Bible commentators 
and revelation will just make up their own interpretation for certain symbols. We can't do that. Let's listen and see if God gives us the divine interpretation of what these seven lampstands are and what the seven stars are. Well, he does. That's point number three. And here's the actual prophecy given to John 17 to 20. And it's regarding the fullness of times. The fullness of times. In other words, how history is really going to end. Everybody has their own view of history, how it's going to end. It's actually going to end, we're being told, because Iran now has nuclear capabilities and we're probably going to have World War III and there's going to be a war there and it could be cataclysmic and end the world. That's one view of history that's being propagated that we see on CNN. On CNN. And, well, let me keep going. Let's look at verses 17 to 20. This is God's view of the fulfillment of history and how history is going to end. Follow along. The fullness of times. When I saw Him, that is Jesus in His glory, and this would do, any, this, would do this to any sinner in the flesh. Because when you see God in His glory, immediately we see reflected our own sin, our own unworthiness. This is what Peter did when he first met Jesus and saw Him do a miracle. He was exposed to his own sin and he fell over. He said, God, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. And that's what John is feeling here as he's confronted by Jesus' glory. When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Passed out. Here's an amazing thing, verse 17. And he laid his right hand on me. There it is. Jesus touched John. So remember, Paul said when he had a spiritual vision, he didn't know if he was in the body or out of the body, but we do know that Jesus actually physically touched John, when this happened, he's dead, not doing CPR, just touches him and he brings him back to life or raises him up. So he was able to physically touch him. Jesus was physically there in John's midst. We know that because that's what the text says, which is also a good reminder that Jesus exists right now in glory from the time that he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter one with his apostles and he went into heaven. Jesus exists in his physical glorified body. We know that. And He's going to return in that same physical, glorified body because that's what the angel said in Acts chapter 1. In the same manner you saw Him go is the same manner in which He will return. So Jesus has a glorified, majestic, perfect, eternal, resurrected body. He uses it to touch John, to encourage him, to raise him up so he can finish writing this book. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. Fear not. Did you know that was the most repeated phrase throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation that God speaks to His people? Fear not. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Do not be fearful. Do not be anxious. God says that to His people more than anything else in the entire Bible. It's another good thing to write down in your Bible. God said to me, fear not. And He does that to encourage John here. Do not be afraid. And He reminds him, I'm the living one. I'm alive, John. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. You know that. You came to the tomb when I rose from the dead. I have the keys of death and Hades. Who controls death? Not Satan. Jesus does. God does. Hades, the underworld, the grave. Some people call it hell. Who's in charge of hell? God is. Jesus is. He has the authority. Key speaks of authority. Jesus has authority. The book of Matthew says that God created hell for the devil and his angels. Satan did not create hell. Satan is not in charge of hell. Satan will be confined to hell by God and Jesus Christ. Jesus has authority over death, over hell. He is in charge. He is the boss. Verse 19, a second time Jesus says, write, John, write it down. Write therefore the thing. And here is the fullness of the times. Here is the essence of the prophecy. This is key. This is huge. 
Jesus is going to use terminology right out of the Old Testament. He's using specific phrases that come from Daniel chapter 2. He's using specific phrases that were spoken in Matthew 24 and also in Luke and in Mark when Jesus was predicting the end times, the tribulation period, the coming of His second, uh, the appearance of His second coming. Here's the terminology He's going to use in verse 19. Write down the things which you have seen. That just refers to everything you've seen up to this point. Everything you just saw about me, chapter 1, write it down. That's point one in the book of Revelation if you're outlining it. Write down the things that you just saw. Second thing you need to write down, John, write down the things that you have seen and write down the things that are. Write down the things that exist and are going on right now in the world and through history until the fulfillment of end things. What is that? That's the church age. That's chapters 2 and 3. Those are the things which are. And then the third point, and this is the phrase that comes out of the Old Testament. After you write down chapter 1 and then chapter 2 and 3, middle of verse 19, write down the things which shall take place after these things. Now that phrase right there, write down the things which shall take place. The things which shall take place. That is a technical phrase. That is a rare phrase. That is an Old Testament phrase. It is hardly ever used. It is reserved for exclusive prophecies regarding the future, end times, eschatology, the coming of the Messiah. That phrase. It's not just a nonchalant English phrase that John decided to write down that really doesn't mean anything specific. This is a very specific technical phrase. It comes right out of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel uses it three times. And Daniel has a prophecy about when Jesus comes in the future and God said to Daniel, as he was writing it down, the things, and it says, in the latter days. Verse 28. And in the future. Verse 45. Daniel chapter 2. The things which shall take place. He says it three times in Daniel chapter 2. The things that shall take place. The things that shall take place. And it's future and it is in the latter days. Jesus picks up on that terminology in Matthew 24. He quotes Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus Himself uses that exact same phrase. The things which shall take place, but not yet, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. This is still yet future. So it's a technical phrase. It's a phrase of eschatology. It's a phrase referring to the latter times of how the world is going to end. Write down the things which shall take place, John the future. That's why we believe the book of Revelation is primarily future. From chapters 4 to the rest of the book. Chapter 4 to the rest of the book is all future. How do we know? Well, look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After he talks about the things which are in the church, Revelation chapter 4, as he looks to the future, John, the, the apostle who wrote this down, he said, after these things. That's terminology out of Revelation 1.19 referring to the things which are the church age. After these things. After the churches. After the church age. A transition. We're looking to the future now. I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard. John was caught up into heaven for more revelation. Come up here, said the voice, and I will show you what must take place. There it is. The things that must take place. Exact same phrase. And that, that phrase is repeated one more time in Revelation chapter 22 at the very end of the book after John describes all that's going to happen in the future. Revelation 22 verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord God, the spirits, the prophets sent his angel to show John the apostle and all the believers the things which must take place, the future. So it is a technical, specific phrase and is referring to the latter times, the future. And that's what Revelation primarily is about, chapters 4 through 22, and we're going to look at that. And then finally in verse 20, 
Oh, good. We're going to get those seven lampstands explained. It's for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. What are they, Jesus? And the seven golden lampstands that I was standing around, the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. Some of your translations might say angels. The actual word is angelos, which means messenger, because the word angelos in the New Testament can mean angels. It can refer to human beings. It can be holy angels. It can be bad angels. It can be Satan himself. It can be a holy angel of God. It can be a human. It can be an angel. So it's best to just keep it at that word. A messenger. And I believe that's the way it should be. I don't think this is an angel. I think these were real men, messengers on behalf of God and John, who took these seven letters and they went to all these seven churches and they distributed the letters as Jesus had commanded. Because you, ha- you come up with the word angel only by interpretive context. So the seven stars are the seven messengers of the churches. And the seven lampstands, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. There it is. There's no mystery. The seven lampstands are the churches that Jesus stands in the midst of. He is the high priest of His church. It is His church. He's the Lord of the church. He's the head of the church. It's the body of Christ. He is in charge. He has the authority over the church. And this is preparatory for chapter 2 and 3 as Jesus is going to address His churches with authority, with blessing and also with chastisement and warning. Very practical for us. So that's coming. So Jesus just lays it out for John. This is what's coming. That is the prophecy regarding the fullness of times. And as we go through Revelation, it's going to be exciting because we're going to see how God has orchestrated all of world history and how the world is going to end and what the future has to hold, not just for the whole world, but for believers in particular. And the encouraging thing is Jesus the high priest, He is in charge of history. God, history is His story, they tell us, and that's true. And that should encourage your hearts if you know Jesus Christ personally. Let's go ahead and pray and thank God for His Word, His truth that is a double-edged sword that enlightens our understanding. Father, we do thank You for our time together. We do thank You again for Your Word. Just how we see You telling John the Apostle to write it down, to write it down, to write it down for the people that lived 2,000 years ago. And it's also graciously been preserved by You for us. Christians today, so that we can also know your truth. We thank you for that great blessing. Uh, We commit our time to you, praying that you'd receive the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650- six three zero 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 nine